seated. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Well, we've been talking about <clears throat> prayer for the last few weeks, and uh, we're going to continue that subject tonight. And we've been uh, making reference to Matthew, the sixth chapter, where it talks about what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Traditionally, that's what it's been referred to, and we find it in Luke, or excuse me, in Matthew, the sixth chapter. And, uh, and so we're just going to go ahead and read that tonight. Um, Matthew, the sixth chapter, and uh, beginning in the ninth verse. And it says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So, like I said, we, we call this the Lord's Prayer, you know, because uh, Jesus taught the prayer. And, uh, but when Jesus gave us this prayer, as we've been sharing, it wasn't given for us to, as a church, to just repeat. Um, it was an outline for us. Because, technically speaking, um, it isn't even a New Testament prayer. Um, in your notes, if you look at John, the 16th chapter, we see where Jesus was given instruction for when we pray. And in the 23rd verse, and he, he says, uh, And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you receive that your joy may be full. And so what, what Jesus is saying in that portion of Scripture is that when, we're, when we pray, we're to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, I also understand that we've also had a tendency just to make that a religious ritual that we go through that at the end of any, every prayer we just, you know, attack on the name of Jesus. But what we're doing is we're, we're praying to the Father and our authority or avenue that even gives us a right to speak to the Father is, is through Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here in John, he's saying that from now on, when we pray, we're to pray to the Father and we're to pray in Jesus' name because that's what, what gives us credibility. You know, um, maybe it's just a pet peeve of mine, 
But one of the things that really bothered me today is, by today I don't mean today, this day that we live in, is that there's a, there's a lot of folk that pray, and when they end they pray, they say in the name of God. Well, that wouldn't bother me if I knew what they were making reference to. If they were making reference to Jesus as God. But what we've done is we've, we've become politically correct. And we say in the name of God so that whatever God it is that you are praying to, you can, it's relevant to you. Well, the problem with that is, is there is only one God. And I know in the scene that we're in today that uh, I'm narrow-minded. I'm uh, probably a bigot. I, I fit all those negative connotations because I believe the Bible. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no other way to the Father but through me. And so Jesus is the way, and, and the Father that he's talking about is Father God. It's Jehovah, it's, it's Elohim, it's, it's the name of, God's, of God that we find in the Bible. It's not what somebody else has come up with, what, what their God's name is. And so when we pray as New Testament Believers, we pray to the Father, not a Father. We pray to the Father, and we pray to the Father in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And because of Him, through His death, burial, and resurrection, we have authority to approach the Father and call Him Father. You know, and so that's one of the things that's so really so significant about, you know, the Lord's Prayer, if we use it as a pattern for us to follow, is that he, uh, he gives us, He reveals to us that we're, we're supposed to speak to Father God. And see, what's so unique about that, and that's why, you know, the religious folk had so much trouble, even with, with this prayer that Jesus brought, brought forth, was because we didn't have, we didn't have a right to go, call God Father. We, we didn't have a right to imply in any way that we had any kind of relationship with Father, especially to have such an intimate relationship with the Father as a, a father and a son or a father and a daughter would have for him. We would have no right, no privilege, no opportunity to do that. And so, though, so Jesus totally um, blew out of the water the religious folk because to them, God was judge, God was master. You see, it, it, <clears throat> if, you, if, you get, if you listen to religion, you'll get the impression that God's still mad at you. But the good news is, God's not mad at you. 
God wants to have relationship with you. God wants us to approach him with what we're going to cover this here as we go along here. But he wants us to approach him with, with boldness and confidence. You can't approach somebody with boldness and confidence if you think they're against you. You can't approach them with boldness and confidence if you think they're mad at you. If, they, if you don't think that they want to have a relationship with you. And so what Jesus is doing in this Lord's Prayer, he's, he's, he's revealing to us a pattern to follow in prayer, but it's based on relationship. It's prior to the relationship, but he's basically saying this is what's going to be available to us. And so, um, anyway, it, it, it talks about relationship. Um, it's in your notes, but Psalms 100, 100 verse 4, it says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with, with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter into his presence with praise and thanksgiving. What's this saying? This is saying, you know, when we, when we come to the Father in the name of Jesus, um, we come with a heart of thanksgiving. No, why, why are we thankful? Because we know he's going to hear us. Enter into my gates or enter into my presence with thanksgiving, knowing that he's going to hear us, knowing that we have an audience with him, knowing that he's not going to turn us away. And as we go along here, the confidence that we have is knowing what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And that's why it's not a, a prayer that's just simply a pattern to follow. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a form of where we're going to be and how we can, we can pray this prayer and we can pray it with confidence knowing what Jesus has already done for us. And the reason that we know that, as it says in John 19, 3, when Jesus uh, proclaimed from the cross, he said, it's finished. And in saying that it was finished, he was, he was saying, you know, the veil is torn in two. The significance of the veil being torn in two is that God's no longer behind a veil. There's no longer this veil of separation between us and Father God that we can now, for the first time since the fall of man, have a true, intimate relationship with Father God. It is finished. Um, the penalty for our sin that separates us from God is paid and is paid in full. And as a result of that now, we can, we can, with thanksgiving, we can enter into his courts with praise. You know, <clears throat> you can't praise something that you can't have a relationship with. And we can praise God because we have a relationship with him. But getting back to Matthew, the sixth chapter again, where he's talking about um, the prayer. And... Uh, Beginning in the third, third verse, or, I mean, excuse me, in, in Matthew 6, the 10th verse, and it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, 
My entire life growing up, I mean, I, I've, I've gone to church my entire life, as, you know, as far back as I can remember. You know, even, I, I mean, I was just a practicing sinner going to church, but I always went to church and we always said the Lord's Prayer. And it wasn't until after I was born again and some years after that, that this part of the verse really began to have any significance to me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, there needs to be a, an understanding that whatever God's will is in heaven, that's his will for us here on earth. You know, so if, if there isn't any sickness in heaven, it's not God's will for there to be sickness here. If there's no lack in heaven, it's his will for there to be no lack here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And by the way, this is why it's technically still an Old Testament prayer. Because we don't have to pray for his kingdom to come any longer. His kingdom has already come. His kingdom came in Jesus, and his kingdom was manifest in your life and my life the moment that we were able to be born again. Now, there's a time where we're going to live in the kingdom. But we're in the kingdom right now because the kingdom of God is on the in, inside of us. And so uh, that's another reason why, you know, the prayer, it's, Technically, not well, maybe New Testament isn't right because it's in the New Testament. New Covenant. Because the kingdom has already come. We're, we're not, if we're praying for his kingdom to come, that's, that would be the same as we'd pray, oh, Jesus, come and take stripes for my healing. He's already taken the stripes for our healing. It, that's why it already belongs to us. Or Jesus, come and, and take my place in poverty so that I can have something. No, Jesus already came and he, he already became poor so that you and I might be rich. You know, so he's fulfilled all that. Why? So his kingdom could come and reside in you and me. His kingdom has come. His will is to be done in earth. You realize you're just a pile of dirt, don't you, with a little bit of water mixed in. You know, so, so when I, I look at it this way, when it talks about thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, I think of the earth, but I also think of the earth. And so his kingdom, his will be done in us as it is in heaven. And so whatever he would have manifest in heaven, that's what he wants to have manifest in the earth. And so we need to begin to get a picture of that in and Jesus' life and what he did was a manifestation of his will here on earth. Everything that he did, everything that he, he did on the earth was, was, a, was a demonstration, was a manifestation of what God's will is. And so we're to be living that out. We're to be the fulfillment of that. And then he goes on in the 11th verse and he tells us that it's okay for us to expect God to meet our needs just like 
a child expects his or her parents to meet to supply their need. And that, if you have a healthy household, that's what the children expect. They, they expect that they're, they're going to be fed. They, they expect that they're going to be clothed. They expect that they're going to be sheltered. Amen. And, and so he says here in this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And with that, there's this expectation that, that God is going to meet my needs. You know, I, I think about growing up and, and uh, I look back and I realize <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have much. You know, and, uh, you know, mom and dad, they, they, they scrimped and scraped so that, you know, they could put food on the table and clothing on our backs and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, I, I look back and I realize we didn't have anything. I just didn't realize we didn't have anything. You know, because we didn't have TV to tell me that I didn't have anything. You know, but, but I look back and it gives me a, it gives me a new appreciation of my mom and dad because I, I know how much they had to have sacrificed. You know, that mom wasn't working at wards every Saturday because she was trying to get away from us kids. She was working at wards every Saturday so that on the way home they could stop at the grocery store and get groceries so that they could feed this skinny little dude. You know, believe it or not, there was a time in my life that I was actually skinny. My grandpa was so concerned about, he gave me pills. You know, so it's his fault. You know, but, but, I, but, but in the midst of all that, there was an expectation. I expected that when I came into the house, there was going to be food on the table. You know what? There always was. I expected that when, you know, the year came around and, you know, my jeans were shorter than acceptable, that, that I, was going to, going to, I was going to get some. You know, of course, back then, jeans were the cheapest thing you could wear now. Holy moly, you got to take out a loan to buy a new pair of jeans. Unbelievable. You know, I, I mean, growing up, if you had a pair of jeans and a flannel shirt, I mean, that's as cheap as you could go. Now you go buy a pair of jeans and a flannel shirt, I can buy a suit. Why do you wear suits? It's cheaper than what you're wearing. You know, and, and, but, but, but there, there's this expectation. He's telling us that we ought to have, there, there's to be an expectation in our life. When you fl read Philippians 4.19, do you have an expectation that, that God's going to supply all your needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus? Or do you think that's just a nice passage that's been stuck in there? No, it, it's to tell us that God is going to supply all our needs according to His riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Now, of course, like I shared, it was either last week or the week before, that's in response to us supplying the needs of the ministry. But he says he's going to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 4, 16, it says, Let us therefore... And so now, Jesus is teaching this prayer before his death, burial, and the resurrection. Now, I, I happen to believe 
that Paul wrote Hebrews. And so I'm, I'm believing that this is part of the, the revelation that Paul got for us. And he says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. That's what Jesus was saying we would be at, that there was grace available to us to meet every one of our needs, that we could come to God not with our tail between our legs, not crawling and begging, but we could come to God with boldness. And he said he would have grace available to us to supply our need, whatever that need might be. Now, religion doesn't tell us that. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer and what we call the Lord's Prayer, and we don't, we don't put it in the proper context, we look at it from the standpoint that we're still expecting something to come. Let me tell you something. If you're waiting for Jesus to do something, you're going to be waiting for all of eternity because Jesus has already done it. Jesus, the Bible says, is seated at the right hand of Father God on high. And the reason that he's seated there, what, what, when, when somebody, what that implies, when somebody sits down, it implies they finished their work. They finished their project. Jesus finished his work, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he's done. So if you're waiting for Jesus to do something, that's why it's so important for us to renew our minds by the Word of God. Because when we get into the Word of God and we begin to meditate in it, and we begin to confess it, we begin to realize what Jesus has accomplished for it. For us, Because it's not something that's going to be done, it's something that's already done. The grace has already been made available, the, the provision has already been provided. And so now we need to, what we need to do is believe Him. Then we go on into the 12th verse and it says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our sinners, uh, give our debtors. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, or some translations or in other accounts it says sins. Lord, forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those that sin against us and so on and so forth. But again, that was before Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. When you and I, when we receive Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. Now, I know in, in some circles, they, they, they say we, we, we've got to continually ask for forgiveness for our sins. Well, how do you know when you got them all? Because if you're required to ask for forgiveness for some, you're required to ask for forgiveness for all. And so how do you know when you've achieved that mark? 
Well, you'll never know. Because you know what? We mess up in, in ways that are, we're not even aware of. Now, people say, well, pastor, so you say we, we don't have to confess our sin, we don't have to repent. Now, I, I said we don't have to confess our sin, but we have to repent. Repent means that we, we turn from what we're doing and we go in a whole new direction. That's all that repentance is. And as, as a believer, we live a life of repentance. I mean, If we were perceptive, moment by moment, we would see things that we need to change. And it, the, the solution to that isn't saying, oh God, I'm sorry, forgive me. But, but that's basically what we've oftentimes said is repentance. That's, that's not repentance. That's saying you're sorry for what you've done. Repentance means that there's going to be an action that goes along with it. Remember... Jesus shared the story. There was these two young men, the, the young sons of the father. And the father went to the first son. And he says, son, I want you to go to the field and I want you to work today. And he says, no, I'm not going to go. And so he went to the second son and he says, son, I want you to go to the fields today and I want you to work for me. And he says, yes, father, I'll go to the fields. And he never went to the fields. But it says the second son this is Schroeder's paraphrase. As he thought about it, he felt bad that he had disobeyed his father. And so he went to the field. Doesn't say anything about him going to his father and say, Oh, Father God, or, or it wasn't God, it was his father. Oh, fathereth, I have sinneth against thou, thereforeeth, I shall go to the fieldeth. No, he repented. And he went to the field. He did what was right. The other son, he said he was going to do something, and he just, he just didn't do it. You see, we're to be as the first son. There's, there's times where, when we've known the right thing to do, and we've just not done it. Am I just preaching up myself? You all understand what I'm saying. You know, but we just didn't do it. And so, the, the solution to that isn't going to God and saying, oh God, I messed us up again. No, the answer is go do it. Follow through and do what we've been given to do because our sins are forgiven. You know, until we, we have a revelation that our, that our sins are forgiven, we'll always be as a child that's trying to measure up. But you know, the problem with the child that's always trying to measure up, they never, they never feel like they've measured up. Because they haven't accepted the fact that they're loved unconditionally. They're loved just the way that they are. And so I don't know about you, in my early Christian walk days, my greatest frustration was the fact that I felt that I was a failure. That every time I turned a corner, I messed up, I screwed up again, I failed God again. And so I, I, I never felt the love of God as I ought to have felt the love of God because I felt like I was failing God. But when I came to the realization that while I was yet a sinner, Christ 
died for me. And Christ went to the cross for me because Father God loved me while I was a sinner. And so I was loved unconditionally. And so when I began to realize that God doesn't love me because of my behavior, God loves me because I'm his son. And because I'm his son, and I know that God loves me, my greatest desire is to love him back. And the number one way that I can love him back is to show, to demonstrate that I love him. Not to prove something, but to express to him how much I love him by, by my behavior. And so, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, we're already forgiven. And I think one of the reasons that people have a problem forgiving people is they're still trying to be forgiven. They're trying to, trying to get this sense of forgiveness. But let me tell you something. When we know that we're forgiven, and God has forgiven me that $10 billion debt that I owed him, and he just simply looked at it and he says, you're forgiven. The debt is forgiven. That person that owes me that, that 15 cents, if I've got the revelation of how God has forgiven me, I can forgive that person. And I can forgive them out of my heart. It isn't just going through the motions. I can actually forgive that person because I know what, what Jesus has done for me. In the 13th verse it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, you know, and, and I, I think I might have even said this the other night. You know, how, <clears throat> you know, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. But you know what? The Holy Spirit didn't tempt him. The enemy tempted him. But there, there, there's something else about this. Because, I, I, again, I hear this from people. That, that God place this on this individual to teach them something or to see if they were really serious. And they'll, they'll go back to this and they'll say, you know, well, you know, he said, you know, we're, we're to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But the thing that we have to realize is that we have been delivered from temptation through the work of Jesus, through the death, burial, and the resurrection. Yes, there's temptation that comes our way. But we need to recognize where that temptation comes from. It's either coming from the world, the flesh, or the devil. None of it is coming from God. Listen to this. In James 1, 13 and 14, it says, Let no one say, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Drawn away. Drawn away from what? Drawn away from the principles of God. Drawn away from the love of God. Drawn away from the truth of God. You know, everything, the flesh, the world, and the devil, what do they want to do? They want to draw us away 
from Jesus. The flesh, your flesh wants to do what your flesh has always done. So what it wants to do is it wants to draw you away from the things of God because your spirit man wants to serve God, wants to do what's right every single time. And that, once again, (laughs) is why the renewing of the mind is so important so that we begin to think in line with the Word of God because the more that we think in line with the Word of God, the more our flesh has to follow. Now, our flesh will never want to do that. You know, it, you know to, to, we all hope and pray for a, a day and time where, you know, the flesh will just always want to do what God wants it to. It ain't going to happen because the flesh always wants to satisfy its fleshly desires. But the more that we train it to follow after the Spirit, maybe easy isn't the right word, but it becomes less difficult to follow after the Spirit and the, and the flesh doesn't rule us any longer. But the other side of it is, we have to recognize that I have been set free from temptation that that God isn't bringing that thing into my life to teach me something. Because let me tell you something. You know, I've heard it for years. Well, you know, God put this sickness on somebody to teach them something. And so it's God's will for them to be sick to teach them something. And so then you go to the doctor and ask the doctor to help you get out of the will of God. Because if it was God's will for you to be sick so that he can teach you something, then what you need to do is stay sick until you learn it. Well, pastor, that's foolish. Amen. I agree with you. 150%. But until we recognize where the attack comes from, how do we resist it? You know, we we hear it from our military people all the time. How How do you fight against, how do you battle an enemy when you don't know who the enemy is? Never has there been a truer statement, man. And that's not only for the physical battlefield, that's also true for the spiritual battlefield. How do we battle in the spirit if we don't know who the enemy is? The thief has come but for to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Well then, Pastor, you're saying anybody that gets sick It's evil in their life. Well, the sickness is evil. The individual is not evil. The enemy is just out to to destroy. I would rather go to my grave fighting a fight of faith than go to my grave yielding to what the enemy has placed upon me and have the misconception that is God. We need to know who our enemy is. We need to know who we're battling. And so then it it closes the prayer and it says, 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And so, I don't remember who I heard talk, using this terminology, but they talked about how Jesus is modeling the sandwich prayer. That our prayer begins uh, by, by praising God and it closes by praising God. Um, Matthew 6, 9 and 13. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed by the name, by, be thy name. And then we end with praise, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we begin our prayer with praise. And we end our prayer with praise. And in between, we make the sandwich and we stick in all our petitions and our supplications and, and all of those things, we, we, we stick them in between. But you know, I believe our prayers begin to change when we begin to have a revelation of what Jesus has done for us. Because again, religiously, what many people do is they, what they call prayer is speaking the problem. But when we realize that Jesus has done it all, what we do is we begin to pray, we begin to speak the answer. We begin to speak the solution. When we realize that, that Jesus has already done it all, he accomplished it on the cross, that he restored, he not only restored relationship with the Father for us, but he, he defeated the enemy the graces that he made available to us that we speak of in, in Ephesians, the graces of, of healing and provision and, and deliverance and restoration, all of that is, is the grace of God that has been made available to us. But the one thing about grace, it's, it's there, but we, we need to appropriate it in our life. And how do you appropriate something that you're not aware that it belongs to you? Ephesians 3.8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's a gift from God, not of works lest any man should boast. But it's by grace that you're saved through faith. So the grace is available and it belongs to us and we appropriate it by faith. We receive what Jesus has already done, what Jesus has already accomplished for each and every one of us. Now, again, Matthew 6, 9 through 13 is commonly, we call it the Lord's Prayer. We see a, a shortened version of it in Luke the 11th chapter and uh, beginning in the, in the second verse. And it says, So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins 
For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so here, you know, the prayer that Jesus taught in Matthew 6 is repeated. But the reason I shared that is that then following that prayer, uh, there, there's a section of scripture that's often used um, for teaching on prayer. But the problem is, is oftentimes the way that, we, that it's taught is just the opposite of the way that Jesus intended for it to be taught. And so let's look at verse 5. And it says, And he said to them, Which of you ha shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him, because he is his friend, yet be, uh, because of his uh, persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And so it's taught, see, it's difficult to get from God. And so you need to be persistent. Now, I believe in being persistent. But it isn't because God is difficult to receive from. He was showing a, a, a comparison there to a friend in the world, how it may be difficult to get from him, but eventually, if you persist, you're going to get it. But it wasn't saying that this is how God is. And so we, we see it over and over again. We, we see it with the, the parable of the wicked judge. And, and people say, well, they, they use that as teaching that, that God is the judge. And they, there, there isn't anything wicked about God. And so the comparison, it, it, it's not there. And so here he's, he's showing what man is like, but God isn't like that. And then we, we read on and see oftentimes the problem is, is we always stop. We don't continue reading because the context of it, he's still talking about the same thing. And so he says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. And then he goes on and he gives an example. And he says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a scorpion? <clears throat> or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, Will he offer him a, a, a scorpion? If you then, you see what he's saying? If you then, being evil. I like to think of myself as being a good father. 
I like to think of myself as being a better grandfather. But in my best day, in comparison to God, it's evil. And so he's saying, you think you're pretty good because when your kid asks for a fish, you don't give him a serpent. You give him a fish. Or if he asks for an egg, you don't give him a scorpion. You give him an egg. But then he says, but you being evil, in comparison, or evil. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? I like that. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, of course, there's a couple of different ways of handling this and addressing this. You know, the one is, in our asking, He's going to give us what we ask for. He's not going to give something that's false. But He also shows that when we, we ask for the Holy Spirit, He's not going to give us something false. You know, because over the years, once again, you know, there's individuals that have taught that when you ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the manifestation of tongues, you know, how do you know if you've got the right thing? You might have, you might have got something false. In fact, there were years back, there was an individual, he, he professed to have discernment, and, and his, his area of expertise and his discernment was in your was in your tongue, your prayer language, that he could hear it and he could discern whether it was of God or whether it was of the devil. The ironic thing is he never found anybody's that was of God. And of course, if you look back in his, his uh, belief system, you find out that he didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the manifestation of tongues. And so why would he discern that yours was of God. But see, if we have confidence in God, that's, that's what it comes down to. If we have confidence in God and we believe Him and we believe that He loves us and we believe that He completed the work that was placed before us, and if we believe that we have an audience with God and that He hears us, and that when we approach Him with boldness and confidence in our time of need and we ask Him for something, He is not going to give us something false. And along with that, He's not going to allow the enemy or anybody else to come in and give us something false. He's going to give us the real thing. And so, whether or not you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the manifestation of tongues, if you've asked for it, and you've received it, you have it. And you have the real thing because of who you asked. And if you haven't asked, and you're afraid to ask, because you're concerned that you won't get the real thing, let me tell you something. If you ask Father God, He's not going to give you something false. He's going to give you the real thing. And that gibberish that starts coming out of your mouth is the real thing. 
It's the Holy Ghost. And I got excited tonight. But that's the God that we serve, and that's the confidence that we need to have in Him. And it all goes back because this is where it was given. In Acts, the second chapter, in the first verse, and it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And you know, <clears throat> I love the Pentecosts, Pentecostals. I love them. I just don't love all their doctrine. And one of the doctrines that I don't love is the doctrine, by, by not all, but by some, that you have to tarry for the Holy Ghost, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the interpretation that I have of their tarrying is basically begging, begging God to do something for them. What we need to understand is when the children of Israel, not the children, when the disciples were gathered in the upper room, they were waiting for Pentecost. They were waiting for the initial outpouring or manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the earth. Once he came, he has not gone back. He's still here today in the same way, in the same manifestation. And so it's important for us to understand they were waiting for a particular moment, not a particular experience. They were waiting for a particular moment, and that moment was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a particular day, the day of Pentecost. And so it says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they, there appeared to them uh, divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave, their, gave them utterance. You see, we're not asking for tongues. We're not seeking tongues. What they were seeking was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The benefit, some people don't think it's a benefit, some people talk about it like it's a curse. No, it's a benefit. Of the, one of the benefits of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is we get to pray in other tongues as the Spirit gives us utterance. Well, we're not talking about 
that tonight, but uh, we did anyway. God's not judging you. He's loving you. You know, it's, what's interesting, and again, we've got to close, but what, what's so interesting is in the Old Covenant, God was revealed as judge. But the Scripture tells us that Jesus, that, that God the Father took that authority, that judgment, and he passed it to the Son. And the, impre the, the, the impression there is that he did it because it was contrary to his true character or nature. Most people see God's number one attribute as being a judge. But the Bible says that judgment was foreign to him. Never created man to judge man. Created man to have fellowship with man. And so he passed the judgment unto his son, Jesus. And it tells us that Jesus took judgment and he passed it on to the Word. Because he says, if, you will, if we will judge ourselves according to the Word, that we're already judged. And so judgment is it's, it's foreign to God. It's not his nature. God is love. His nature is love. God, the Father, has received a bad rap. <laughs> because we attribute things to him that are not his. And so, uh, the Lord's Prayer, it's a pattern. If we pray it, we can pray it, but let's keep it in the proper context. And let's recognize what Jesus was really wanting to reveal to us and wanting to make known to us. Well, next week, well, next week I don't know what we'll be covering, but we'll be talking about prayer some more. And uh, so uh, be blessed. Have a great rest of the week.